Well, good morning. I'm going to say on our Labor Day weekend, I hope you have Monday off. If not, sorry. <laughs> yeah. A couple things as you get situated. It, you should have, when you leave today, you should have sermon notes that look sort of like this right now. If you didn't get them when you come in, they're back there on that blue table. Um, I also have a couple things. The one we'll talk about in our prayer focus at the end uh, a prayer focus for praying for the refugees um, in Afghanistan and some of the refugees that, had, that have been able to get out. I've got a prayer guide for that. I've also got another handout that we will talk about later I would like for you to pick up. So when you leave today, you should have three pieces of paper um, that will help you not only apply and understand God's word we're going to talk about today, uh, but also to help us pray better for our brothers and sisters and those in need. So. We have been looking for a few weeks now in John 17, the high priestly prayer. If you think about it in your mind, either Jesus was in the upper room with his disciples or, as most believe, and so what I sort of think is that they were actually on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. We'll see that next week, that they're going to be in the Garden and where the, the passion of the Christ is going to begin to unfold in greater detail. And so he's praying. He first prayed for himself, you remember. And now he prayed for his disciples. And this week he prays for us. So let's stand to our feet and let's see what we can glean from God's word this morning. John 17, I'm going to be, we're going to be looking at verses 20 to 26. If you want to really hone in, verse 21 is the focal passage of the text this morning. Verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. That they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them. That they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you, also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name and will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Lord, as we have gathered and centered our minds and our hearts around the truth of your word, we come in our need to confess that you have no need. You are our sovereign God. The Lord of all. And we as your people. Have bowed the knee. To the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So Lord we long to be one today. One with you. One with each other. One in the very purpose and reason of why we are here. So teach us Lord. Sharpen our swords as it were. May we all make sure that we know our parts 
to play in your body. Put us to work, to action. Give us rest today for those who need encouragement, for those who need to know that they are radically and eternally loved. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Jesus is praying. He is, this is intercessory prayer. It's where we get to know how we then pray for other people. He has first prayed for glory for himself. This glory that he had with the Father, he's about to pick it back up. And then he prays for his disciples. The disciples, particularly in mind that we saw last week, were the apostles. These men that he is going to speak the truth of God's word and they will in turn write this truth down. There has been all through church history, beginning right here with this prayer, a desire for unity. This is a good desire. You see, it comes from a triune God. Without, no, without an understanding of Trinity, this prayer breaks down. The cross breaks down. Who exactly was Jesus when he died on the cross? Who, when the Father turned his back on him, who was he? Without the triune God, how does any of this even make sense? God is a unity. He is not composed of parts. He is not a, like a pizza that's divided in three pieces. He is not partly anything. He is not partly good. He is not partly wise. He is not partly patient. Aren't you glad? He is fully. When we speak of these things, when we speak of goodness, we say He is goodness. He is holiness. He is truth and He is indivisibly these things. But us... I can't even agree with myself sometimes. <laughs> James, I'm like divided in my own mind. We are divided amongst ourselves. We argue about things that we shouldn't argue about. So there's a desire for unity, but if you, you don't have to look at history very far to see there is a danger in pursuing unity. So I'm going to teach you a couple words today. They're just words that have meanings behind them. Never get intimidated by words. You need words to communicate. And you may know this word, you may not. Ecumenical. The desire for unity is how we sort of express this. You can sort of express this in this word. Ecumenicism. It is an, a desire of God's people worldwide to you bring unity, to unite. And, and verse 21 is the ecumenical movement's theme verse. They get that from the fact that Jesus desires unity amongst his people. It's important. It's important because we can see that it was the vision of Christ that his people be one in them and one with each other. And yet, there is a danger. What's the danger? Any ecumenical movement that is not based on on the salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone, for His glory alone, is a dangerous movement that will bring disunity, and at worst, unity and heresy. That's the danger. <laughs> so some people get scared of, of these movements. We need to see what's the center of a movement that wants to bring unity. To bring unity is good. To bring it something other than what we were going to define today is dangerous. And so... What's our first step towards unity? Well, understanding it biblically. So my, my introduction is longer this morning for that purpose. 
it's assumed, so to speak, if you don't intentionally try, that unity is something that is outward. We sometimes do this subconsciously. We think if we build the right buildings at the right place, in the right community, or have the right programs or whatever it might be, it will bring unity. If that's the case, then the Catholic Church should be the most profoundly missional, successful of anything. Because at one point in history, they had an institutional unity that compared to no other. But look at our history. Were those not the darkest days in church history? You see, the wrong kind of unity can be dangerous, even damning. So what is this unity? I want you to see three things this morning just by way of introduction. Christian unity is a family unity. We can say it is is an organic unity. And it comes from somewhere. Look at verse 21. Everything we really need for the message is really in verse 21. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. You see, the the foundation, the framework, the, the standard for our oneness is this organic, this family unity that has always existed. Jesus didn't start being the Father, so you can have a point of reference for Him. He has always been the eternal Father. And the Son has always been the eternal Son. This is an organic unity that we come and be a part of. This is Christian unity. It is unity in the Godhead. Our church started what we called from an... I found a paper. I was cleaning up a little bit Saturday morning. I actually found our initial paper that was our vision for how the church planted. It was, we called it organic church planting. It was just that we got a small group of people, we came to a town, we started meeting in a house, practicing the the great commandment with each other, seeking to do the great commission. That was the simplicity. That's why our building looks the way it does, why we do what we do and why we don't do what we don't do. This unity is a family unity. Paul understood this. He gave us metaphors to try to understand it. One of it is the physical body. Look with me at 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Look at verse 26. 1 Corinthians 12. Verse 26. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. You see that? This is a a family thing. It It is the picture of a body that when you have a headache, everything is affected. Christian unity is a family unity, but it's also a spiritual one. We could say it this way. Christian unity is a supernatural union. It is a spiritual union. Jesus, you see, is one with the Father. Verse 21. Father, The Father is in Him. He is in the Father. There is a union. There is a unity amongst them that exists in their very nature. Behold, your God is one. He's one. He's one in his, their very essence, in their very nature. Every action that God the Father does comes from His nature. And so He sent His Son, 
John 6.35. Jesus then comes to us as the bread from God. John 6.35 says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So we get this picture in the Gospel of John of Jesus is like the manna that came down to the children of Israel. It temporarily satisfied their hunger and that Jesus has come to earth to spiritually satisfy our hunger forever. We then, as it were, ingest Christ by faith. We become like Him as we do, not in, a, not in a way like pantheism, like God is the tree and the tree is God, but in the fact that the Holy Spirit changes our nature and then we gradually become like Christ in our actual life. He commits Himself to that. He is with us in a distinct way that He is with no one else in the world. Jesus is our bread from God. We are reminded of this, aren't we, in a few minutes when we take communion. That we are united with Him by faith in what He has done for us. He is with us. We live for Him. He is the bread that comes from God to satisfy people. He saves us. He satisfies us. John 14. John 14. This, John 17 is not... When he starts talking about this, it's when he brings it all together. John 14, verse 20. says, In that day you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Do you see that? It saves us. It satisfies us. Third, Christian unity is a unity in truth. It is a unity in truth. We're going to talk about this next. I just want you to see John 16, 13. John 16, 13. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. Christian unity, then, is a gift of God's grace given by the Spirit through faith. In truth. So this prayer that he first prayed for his disciples is now expanded to us. Verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. In a very real sense, brothers and sisters, Christ has us in mind as he is praying this prayer. He prays for us who will believe. He intercedes for us. As he's doing even to this day. So let me just, let's just look at some truths here. There's a few things I don't want us to miss here. There's plenty for us to go back, preach over and over and never get all of it. I just want us to see three. Unity never compromises truth. Unity. Now when I speak of unity, I'm speaking of that which I just defined. Christian unity. Never compromise truth. Notice the connection between verse 19 and verse 20. Verse 19 he says, For their sake, for the, the disciples, the apostles, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in what? Truth. I do not ask for these only, but for, all, 
but also for those who believe in me through their word. I will set them apart. I will speak my truth to them. They will record it, and then they will speak it to you. Anyone who is saved today, you are saved because the apostolic community proclaimed the word of truth to one generation, and that generation proclaimed it to the next generation. If you study the manuscript copies of God's Word, you will find thousands upon thousands of copies of it because they, they begin to copy it so that every person could see it, could read it, and could be changed by it. What unity is not today, what I am not talking about, is a unity in, in a worldly view of love. Live and let live. Love and let love. We are not united by a common interest, hobbies, or common struggles. Do those things bind us? Absolutely they do. But they bind the hell's angels together too. And Mr. Rick knows that I've been riding a motorcycle since I was a teenager. He's the same way. Brother, if you see a bike broke down on the side of the road, will you pass him? No, you won't pass him. He'll, both of us will stop every day, every time. We will not pass one of those brothers. We'll stop and help him. Why? Because of our common interest, because of our common love. That is not what we're talking about. We're talking about a common love of the gospel that binds us. The common love of Christ. We share Christ, but we never feel the need to compromise truth. This is Christian unity. We are sanctified in truth. Do you see it? Verse 17. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. This is our center. This is our compass. This is our non-negotiable as Christians. The unity that the Lord is praying for is not any kind of unity. It is a spiritual unity around the truth of the gospel. Therefore, we have some non-negotiables here. Some of them are obvious. But will always have to be contended for. First, Christian unity requires us to believe what the Bible says. In other words, in your generation and in your children's generation, in their children's children's generation, they will have contend with the authority, the inerrancy, and the sufficiency of Scripture, for it is always under attack. And sometimes it's under attack we don't even know it. Even when someone say the Bible is sufficient for me for faith and practice, they could be denying the inerrancy even when they say that. What they could be saying is, I only read the Bible to know how I should live, but I don't have to believe everything in it's true. It's not what we're saying. We're saying everything in the Bible is true. The words are true. The grammar is inspired. It is without error. And it is sufficient for us. Everything it says is what God wants us to know. Jude 3 says, we must contend for this. Though there's other things that we would like to talk about. It's what you're just saying. I, there's a lot of stuff I'd like to talk to you about. But I need to write to you to contend for the faith. Our unified commitment to the scripture is a non-negotiable because it is that and that alone that brings maturity in our unity. Your unity and my unity grows and matures just like every other area of our life. We need each other for this growth. A second, Christian unity requires us to never add or take away from God's Word. So there's another word here I want to teach you today. The first, I'm sure you've 
heard before. It's called legalism. Legalism. Legalism adds to God's Word by adding requirements and burdens on people that's not in Scripture. It is what the, the Jewish leaders did to the Jewish people to say, okay, in order to obey God's Word, you need to obey these other hundred commandment things. You need to not walk here and don't walk there and don't drink this on that day and wash your hands. If you do that, God will be happy with you. If not, He won't be. Legalism adds to Scripture. Next word. I know this is a big word, but it's, it's, it's a word you see every day defined, lived out. Antinomian. Antinomianism is what some would call freedom in Christ. One guy in, the, in one Bible dictionary called it spiritual anarchy. It is, it is a perverted view of Christian freedom that rejects the law of God. It says, I'll take Jesus, but I will not make him Lord. Maybe when I'm 60. But not now. We see it all over our community. Ask people if they believe in Jesus. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, me and Jesus, we got an agreement. I'm not living for him. Don't feel the desire to. That subtracts from God's word. That does not bring Christian unity. And most importantly this morning, unity requires us to discern. Listen to what I'm saying here. It requires us to discern essential doctrines from those that are not essential for Christian unity. Did you hear what I'm saying? That we need to discern what is essential and not essential for Christian unity. We're not saying that things are not essential, but they're not important. They're very important. We're saying they're not, they're not essential for Christian unity. Can we discern these things through Scripture? Of course we can. What is essential for salvation? Right? We could, if we were in a small group, we'd sit around here and talk about that, wouldn't we? What is essential for salvation? The New Testament lays out a litany of things. Here are a few of them. The humanity and deity of Christ. That Jesus Christ and Him alone is the world's only Savior. And there's no other way. Christ's death is, is a substitutionary atonement for our sins. Christ's bodily resurrection and that we are justified by faith. And that faith alone. These things are essential I told you there's a piece of paper I'd like for you to pick up at the back. It looks like this. It's, it's real tiny. I can't hardly see it writing. It's, it's an article written by Al Mohler called Theological Triage. You can look it up online. Or if, if, you're, if you've got good enough eyes, you can actually read that article. <laughs> it's Theological Triage. You can look up nine marks, and they have it right there. He defines it this way, and I thought it was very helpful for me personally. There is first level, second level, and third level beliefs. And the first is the list I just gave you. That is, if you don't believe it, you're not saved. That if we don't believe these, if we can't agree with these things that are essential to salvation, then there's a problem. There's second level. These things are things that we might disagree on, and so that people gather themselves in particular denominations like the modes of baptism, uh, church government, those kinds of things. 
that we would affirm that these are, those are our brothers and sisters. I, I love me some Presbyterians. I got good friends that, that are Presbyterians, and we hang out, we talk about it, we make fun of each other, we do all these kinds of things. And but they gather themselves because of some of these beliefs of church government and those kinds of things. But they are brothers in Christ. And then there's third level. Third level doctrines are things that quite honestly are not only doctrines, they're just issues. They're like what I sometimes call the inside of the nut issues of things. There is not a Christian who is a Christian that does not believe in the doctrine of election. But how exactly does that work? Now we're going to have some disagreement. Right? We're going to wrestle with that just like they have been from the beginning. Everyone believes that the Lord is going to return. Going to set up His kingdom. And we will be with Him forever. But talk about the timing of that and all how we can argue. Right? That's what I'm saying. This is important. It is a sin to break unity in your family over third level issues. We ought to be grown up enough to agree on the gospel and have good conversations about things that we don't agree with. Why? Because that's what family does. Francis Schaeffer says it so well, the quotes behind me. The real chasm must be between true believing Christians and others, not at a lesser point. The chasm is not between Lutherans and everybody else, or Baptists and everybody else, or Presbyterians and everybody else. The real chasm is between those who have bowed to the living God and His Son, Jesus Christ, and thus to the verbal, propositional communication of God's Word, the Scripture, and those who have not. Do you see that? Because if we don't get this straight, brothers and sisters, we will fall prey to the evil one who seeks to divide us. He hates the family. He hates your family. He hates the church family. And he seeks to divide them any way he can. We better make sure we understand the strategies of the evil one. We must be united in truth. But unity is not uniformity. You can say this in a positive way. Unity is a unity in the midst of diversity. Unity is not uniformity. Why not? Verse 21. That they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. We all struggle to try to explain this union in the Trinity. Right? Like, How do you put that into words? How do you use an illustration that we can understand that doesn't break down by the time you get it said? There is a unity that I can imagine. I've, I've seen Christina and, and other people do it, and I don't understand any aspect of it. Just a couple. You ever seen any, anybody, a conductor, who's leading both a full orchestra and a full choir? They can do that at the same time. Some way or another, you know. Here's the thinking. Think through this if you've ever seen anybody do that and do it well and heard the results of it. There is a unity that is unison. There are people in there and there are musicians in there that are singing and playing the same notes. And at the same time, there is a distinction that is not discord. You with me? 
There are some that are singing unison, and there are some that are not. But those that are not are not producing discord. A discord is when everyone is playing their own notes with no coherence to it. In other words, what I'm saying, in the Trinity, there is a diversity and there is harmony. There's a harmony in the triune God. This is His pattern for us. All people playing their parts, one piece of music and one conductor. So it is in the body of Christ. We are not the same. We have our own different personalities. We have our own past life experiences. We have our own spiritual gift. And a rigid push for uniformity causes division. Because it makes Joe feel like he needs to be like Sam. And because Joe's not like Sam, he's not as spiritual as Sam. It's not true. God makes us different for a reason. We should embrace our distinctness in the midst of our gospel unity. We sing unison in the gospel we proclaim, but we don't all practice it out the same way in the way we serve God. The church, in other words, should be a taste of heaven. A taste of heaven. It is believers who have different preferences, different hobbies, different jobs, different genders, different backgrounds, different skin colors, all loving one another with a love that surpasses the way the world loves so that the world can see there is a distinctness between the way these people love me and the way they love each other. That and that alone will bring the kingdom of God to growth. Brothers and sisters, and until we embrace it, we will not see the work of God. He will use someone else because we must embrace God's great commandment And God's great commission. There is no other plan. There is no other way. It's unity in truth. And it is unity in the midst of our diversity. And the third point. I'll be honest with you. Every time I get to this point. I'm sitting there going. I don't even know how to preach this. There's an aspect of this. That I'm sitting there going. Like you're trying to hug Mount Everest. You know. There's unity that brings two things. Shared relationship. And shared glory. There's a one of the themes in the Bible that when you grab hold of this principle, it's really helpful. Is that when you read the Bible, oftentimes there is now things and not yet things. And sometimes they talk about it at the same time. <laughs> it's sort of confusing. Well, when is now? When is not yet? Is this what's promised me now? Or is these the things he's promised me later? Here's what he's talking about now. Back to verse 21 again. Now let's add this to what we've been talking about. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. Now look what's next. That they may be in us. The unity here is a unity of relationship. A relationship that already exists. Eternally so. Sovereignly so. And we are being invited, transferred, initiated into this relationship. Christian unity is the result of entering into a deep relationship that exists with the triune God. The Father is in the Son. The Son is in the Father. And then He introduces us and says, My prayer is, 
is that they would be in us the same way. Wow. How do you explain that? We are placed by faith into Christ. He into us. This is a supernatural work. This is not something that you just pray a prayer and sign a card and it happens. This is something that the Spirit's got to do. Jesus lives in us. Shared relationship and a shared glory. These two things are one. (laughs) Look at verse 22. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are one. The glory that you have given me, I have what? Given them. He's praying for you, brothers and sisters. Talking about us here. This glory, we've talked about that last week. It's, the glory is not really an attribute of God, like mercy or wisdom. It is this thing that all of who God is produces within the Godhead. And when we begin to share in that through relationship, it produces glory in us. God Himself is a glory seeker because who else would He seek glory in other than Himself? And He gives us the privilege of reflecting that glory. Of putting his glory on display. And the tragedy of mankind is not that we seek glory. But we seek what the Bible calls vain glory. Temporal glory. Glory that people can give you. Or stuff can give you. Or sin can give you. Or being unfaithful can give you. What he wants us to do. (laughs) And sometimes at the worst times of our life. Is to go back and understand. What has God given me? I love how 1 John 3, 2 connects the now and the not yet. 1 John 3, 2 says this. Beloved. I love that. Don't read over that. Loved by God. We are God's children now. Do you see that? You're not God's child when you die. You're God's child the moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ. Inseparably so, because we don't have a bad father that abandons his children, do we? No. We are God's children now. But look, but what we will be has not yet appeared. You see the not yet? But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Now go back to John 17. You're going to see this is exactly what John is saying. Verse 24. This prayer, Jesus says, Father, I desire that they also, who you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Do you see that? The promise is for unity now, but there is a not yet to our unity that we will experience when God gathers us to himself. This is why Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians, verse 17. 
then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with Him in the clouds to meet Him in the air. And so, we will always be with the Lord. There is not an orthodox Christian that does not celebrate the fact that that is true. Verse 18, therefore, look at verse 18, make sure I get this right now. Therefore, argue over the timing of these words. Is that what it says? It's not what it says. <laughs> it says encourage one another with this. This is true. Do we completely agree with the timing? No! But here's what we celebrate. God's word is true. Our Jesus is alive. And this is my guarantee. The Lord's promises guarantees that this is going to happen. And that we can grow encouragement in the hardest, worst seasons of our life, whether you are living in Gastonia or King's Mountain or Afghanistan. We do not look to heaven for streets of gold. We do not look for heaven so that we can have a shack in the woods away from everybody or a mansion in the city around everybody. We look forward to a time where Paul says in 1 Corinthians, Though I see through a glass dimly, then face to face. Then I will know him as I am fully known. This is our unifying factor. There's not a believer that does not long for this day. And the longer you live, the greater will be your longing. So what? I have a so what and a so that today. I'm just gonna, Jeff used so that sometimes. It's going to say, man, I, I, got, I got both of them today. Two promises. Two promises in our pursuit of Christian unity. Christian unity brings the blessings. And yes, it is good to long for and to pray for God's blessings. It's just offered for the sake of His people. It is good. It is critical. The verse 21 come true in our life. That we might, we might be one even as He is one. One with our Lord and one with each other. Turn with me. This was our, in our hospitality book. We were in, I think it was chapter 7 and 8. This was the scripture that was laid out for it this week. And you know this, not going to read it. Just want you to see it. I love, our, I love the fact that many of our Bibles have headings in them so that we can sort of see what the sections are about. There are blessings where the me and my problem have become us. By the way, I don't need some organization that is not Christian to tell me how to pursue racial unity. What I need to do is open up my Bible and see what, how it has told me to pursue it. And then I must pursue it. Because right here in chapter 2 tells us everything we need to know. The blessing that comes. Look at verses 1 to 10. The blessings that comes with peace with God. You see there was a separated me. <laughs> there was a separated you. 
There was a you, just look at the first few verses, that followed the prince and the power of an heir. There was a you that, that was by nature a child of wrath and that proved it. There was, a ne- there was a you who loved to do it your way, pursued your desire, lived for your glory. But then there was a but God. But God being rich in mercy, because of his grace love that he loved you, Brought us to Him. That's what Christ did. There's the blessing. It's worth it. Because this is the only way people can have peace with God. It is the only way you have it. It's a blessing then that pursues. Now look at verses 11. It follows. You see, you've got to have peace with God first. We have people trying to pursue peace with each other. They don't have peace with God. Don't work. Verse 11. He brings up an illustration. An application of this. He says, you know, sitting in the same room, you know, Jews, let's say the Jews sit on this side, Gentiles on this side. You know, Jews, you don't like them. The Gentiles, you know, y'all don't like each other. There's hostility. But see, Christ came and went into the Holy of Holies to a holy God whom you both offended. And he offered a sacrifice once for all in order to make to have two and make them one. That in Christ now, we have peace with each other. In other words, me and my prejudice becomes me and my family. This is the gospel. This is the blessing. The blessing of a new family. That me and me and me and me and me and me and them and we don't like each other becomes a one family united by a common faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is just true, and my family knows it, and we talk about it all the time. We can't go out to eat without being stared at. Why? Because we don't look all like each other. And this world demands that. And we don't care. Why? Because my children have been given my name. My name. They are little Johns. They're my family. Brothers and sisters, that is who you are in Christ. You have the name given amongst every name. And it is at that name that one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that He is Lord. We are His children in His family. Whatever skin color we have, whatever differences we have, we are united by our common faith. And we dare not separate the church of the living God without suffering His judgment. John 14, 23. Just a beautiful passage. Jesus answers him. Listen to what he says. Look at the chain reaction with this promise. If anyone loves me, he will what? Keep my word. Look at the promise. And my Father will love him and will come to him and make our home with him. I can't give you a better promise than that. And listen, no one else can either. The blessing of a family so that you've been given. Listen to what I'm saying. This is important. This is the whole point of the whole prayer. You've been given all of these precious privileges so that you may be one in His mission. 
We are not supposed to sit around as Christians and our happy family and roast marshmallows together till Jesus comes back. Our family comes with sword, right? Why does Paul use this military analogy to talk about Christian life? Because it's a war and we do it together. You're not saved to sit around in a holy huddle and roast marshmallows. We are saved for mission, verse 21. That they may be all one just as you are, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. Listen, that they may also be in us. Why? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. The context of this is the mission of God. The mission that the disciples will, will be on to. The mission that he will give his people that he's praying for. Which is you and me. How do we reflect God's glory? How do we make him look good in our life? We join this mission. I can do it. I can get on a plane right now. And I can fly to Honduras. I can fly to Africa. I can fly to Romania. I've been to all of those places on mission. And here's what I find. Brothers and sisters in Christ, united under a common gospel, laboring for the, the mission of God. Talked to my brother the other day. Spent some time on the mission field. He had the same testimony. You can get on a plane and fly to Latin America. You can see the mission of God going on all over the world. God is doing His work. And He has asked us to join Him. He has placed you in the place where you live. In the community that you live on purpose. Because we have been given a privilege of not only knowing Him. But making Him known. So, if you are in Christ today, you see, go back to this music illustration. You are either in the choir or you are in the orchestra. So, quit arguing about what position you're supposed to be playing. Quit, quit being discontent because you don't like the way the seats are arranged. Maybe you think the choir should be in front of the orchestra or the orchestra should be in front of the choir. Won't you put those guys, don't they usually, they're sitting in the wrong chairs. They'll just to be... There's a conductor, and that's his job. He gives us a piece of sheet music, and he has given you a part to play. So, brothers and sisters, let us not divide over non-essential things for unity, but let us come together to play the music, because the music he's given us to play is the Great Commission. It is that which brings him glory. So let us embrace it, and let us embrace it together. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the majesty of your word. <laughs> that feeling every week of a pastor who feels like, I should have preached that better. Who is sufficient? Who can fully comprehend all that your word wants to teach us here in John 17? So, God, we have tried to grab these essential things, that which unite us, and try to reject those things that will divide us and show each other grace and charity as we labor together for the gospel. Lord, I thank you that those of us, all of us here, are not like each other. 
And I know, Lord, the, those that are married in the room or that were married or thank you and are grateful for the fact that we didn't, you didn't put us together with people that we're like. That together, in the midst of our diversity, you have made us one. So, Lord, we come now to respond to the Godhead. And yet, Lord, you tell us that we should center our worship on you through the Son. And so, Lord, we now come to stand to our feet to sing of our Savior. To come to the tables to remember that He is our bread of life. That He is our water of life. And so we pray that the Holy Spirit would do His work in us. For we know that the Spirit longs for the Son to be worshipped. He longs for the glory of the Father. And so, Lord, we pray that the Holy Spirit would have His way in us today. That we might know You and make You known. But we don't know how much longer we have. But we know that You've given us a mission to the day You take us home. Be worshipped and honored and glorified in this place today. And in our lives tomorrow. In Jesus' name. Amen.